Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hi, I'm Chris Cottonor, executive producer of Deep State Radio. We are incredibly grateful for the support of our members. February is Member Appreciation Month, and to celebrate, we're offering membership to new members for $1 for the first month or $50 per year. Members receive access to bonus content, member-only briefings delivered on Wednesdays and Fridays, access to our member Slack community, an ad-free listening experience, and much more. We'll also be calling out new members and those who have been supporting us through the years in our upcoming shows. To become a member, which goes a long way to supporting our work, please visit bit.ly slash dsrmember. Use code FEB2022 at checkout. That's bit.ly slash dsrmember and use code FEB2022 at checkout. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Welcome to a special edition of our podcast as we continue our coverage of the events in Ukraine and the vicinity. We're very fortunate to have a great group to discuss it here today. Of course, it's the beginning of the week. And so we start with Corey Shockey, who is in Washington, D.C., possibly. I am indeed, David. Also, I think maybe in Washington, D.C. I'm very pleased to see that we've got Angela Stent, who is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and author of Putin's World, Russia Against the West and with the Rest. Hi, Angela. Hi, and I am in D.C. Also, uh, an old friend, Michael Weiss, who is the news director of New Lines and is the author of a forthcoming history of Russian military intelligence. So I imagine you're watching this very closely, but ruining the fact that you can't also be writing your book while you're watching. Yeah, well, you can explain that to my publisher when we switch off, David. (laughs) (laughs) If yours is as unsympathetic as mine, I feel for you. I'm not going to complain about my book deadline uh, here on this podcast. Rather, we have a lot of breaking events, and I will tell everybody who is listening that as we are listening, the world is waiting for another speech by uh, President Biden. So we'll try to update that as we go along. But let me start with you, Angela. Where do you think we are in all this? Well, Putin has made really his first major move. Uh, All the speculation about was it going to be a massive invasion or limited incursion? Well, it's a limited invasion. And I guess we're using the word invasion now. Recognizing the two separatist enclaves uh, run by Russian proxies as independent states, which happened yesterday, giving what I can only describe as an extraordinarily uh, vituperative, really unhinged speech yesterday. I listened to the whole thing for an hour and 
starting in the 17th century and going forward accusing Ukraine of all kinds of sins, including wanting to acquire nuclear weapons, saying that Ukraine isn't a state, uh, a real state, and accusing, of course, the United States and its allies of trying to diminish and attack Russia. And so what we don't know now is Russian peacekeepers have now entered, so-called peacekeepers have entered these so-called republics. Of course, Russian troops have been there since 2014, but this is the first time they've come in uniform. And we don't know now whether there will be further military hostilities with the Ukrainians. Are they going to try and take over the entirety of these two entities? Because the Russians don't actually control all of them. The Ukrainians control some strategic parts of them. So is this the prelude to a wider war or is this going to be contained there? So uh, that's where we are today. You know, I was going to go to Michael next, but I'm going to go to Corey next because, you know, Angela brought up the content of this speech. And I, Corey, as I was listening to it, I just thought Vladimir Putin has a Russian Corey Shockey sitting beside him who is saying, let's make a 17th century reference. But, you know, there was something kind of surprising to me in all of that, because for so long, people have talked about the nostalgia that Vladimir Putin has for the former Soviet Union. But what he revealed yesterday is that he really has nostalgia for czarist Russia. And he blamed all the mistakes that have led us to where we are on the Bolsheviks and on Lenin and on Khrushchev. It was really kind of something, Corey. What do you think? The English transcripts, I saw of it, really did sound wild. This notion of denying sovereignty and going further than that to deny that Ukraine ever has a right to exist as an independent state. That's like a precursor to genocide. It's really terrible. And I want to say that David's notion about there being a Russian Khrushchev is because I'm always making obscure historical references, yes. not because I'm actually in favor of what's going on here. It's outrageous. I also thought the kind of weird pageantry of letting everybody else in the Russian National Security Cabinet be seen persuading Putin of the need to do this. It was sort of a coup proofing, make clear everybody pushed me to do this just in case this doesn't work out. I have people I can fire instead of having to take responsibility myself. But it's really scary. And, you know, the orchestration of this is ghastly. And even if predictable. Now they're urging Putin to take the entirety of the two Donetsk and Luhansk, even though separatists aren't in control of the entirety of it. He is, as both Angela and Michael have suggested, just ratcheting up the pressure and hoping somebody breaks and demonstrating he's a lot more risk tolerant than any of us are. But one thing I should say, it does sound like the European countries, in particular, the continental European countries, have actually unrolled some pretty heavy duty sanctions. And my guess is that the reason President Biden's wanting to give another speech is to show how tough U.S. sanctions are and to cover up his mistake from several weeks ago about how a limited incursion wouldn't be a major wouldn't necessarily require a major response because this is a limited incursion that is the precursor 
for a lot more unpleasantness to come and a lot more dangerous unpleasantness given his denials that Ukraine has any right to exist as a nation or even ever has. So, Michael, you're writing a book about Russian military intelligence, talking to people in the U.S. intelligence community about these things. Surely you're talking about all of this. Based on those conversations, where do you think we are? Well, you know, it's interesting because the the portrayal we've seen in the Western press all based on a rather bold strategy of the Biden administration to just leak everything that we're intercepting or acquiring in real time. I mean, declassifying it almost instantaneously suggests that this could be a very apocalyptic scenario. Rockets raining down on Kyiv. Lists have been drawn up, allegedly, of Ukrainian patriots who are to be assassinated or disappeared or sent to POW camps. There's talk of urban combat of a style that we saw in Madrid in 1936 or Stalingrad in 1942. I mean, really, a dark, dark picture has been painted of the largest land war in Europe since World War II. But there are a lot of people, not least among them, the Ukrainians, uh, and I've talked to their intelligence officials and some of their political leaders, who don't quite see it unfurling that way. What they think is, okay, Putin has recognized the so-called People's Republics of Donetsk and Lugansk. He's probably going to roll in more forces. I mean, keep in mind, they've already conventionally occupied these territories, right? There's a misconception in the West that what's happened in the last eight years was was, was simply a product of so-called hybrid warfare. Well, actually, that's not true. What happened was they sent in these sort of their goon squad, if you like, former FSB, GRU, Spetsnaz guys, but really just almost mercenary forces to start this dirty war in Donbass in 2014. The thing is, the Ukrainians actually were defeating these guys. And what stopped the Ukrainian anti-terrorist organization, as it was known, was conventional hard power brought in by the Russians, right? This is why a Buk anti-aircraft missile, which had a Buk system operated by Russian military personnel, including GRU officers, took down MH17. This was not some ragtag consortium of militiamen. So really what the Ukrainians see is, okay, so they're going to escalate the conflict that has already been being waged for the last eight years. And then they're going to wait and see what's the West's response to this. Is NATO really so resolved? Is it really so unified? Are there going to be crippling sanctions? The cancellation of Nord Stream 2, which is still kind of will they, won't they from the German side. And then Putin is going to also wait to see what the Zelensky response is. If the Ukrainian military tries to engage these forces, well, there's your pretext for rolling in even more. I was speaking to a, a former CIA head of the Soviet section and station chief in Moscow from the 1980s, who really kind of understands the KGB mindset, which I think is now writ large in the rulership structure of, of contemporary Russia. And he thinks Putin wants success. He does not want a full-scale war and occupation. And to achieve success in Ukraine, He's got a, a much bigger toolkit than I think we're all appreciating here. He's got covert action. He's got intelligence recruitment, terrorist activities he could get up to. He can slowly chip away at Ukraine's integrity without rolling in basically all the way up to the Polish border in the West. So I'm inclined toward that point of view now. But again, you know, there's just too much that we simply do not know, including what's going on in the the attic of this man's mind. And, and as both Corey and Angela pointed out, that speech was both tedious and terrifying at the same time. I've not heard or read a speech from Vladimir Putin in 22 years that was 
quite as ominous as that one. So, Angela, you said Putin is risk averse. Let's take the scenario that you kind of touched upon, that Michael has touched upon here. Putin assembles 190,000 troops around Ukraine. He sends a message. We can take Ukraine. We can obliterate Ukraine. Then he sends in a limited number of troops. He doesn't just take what he had. He goes to the edges of the two oblasts, the Luhansk one and the Donetsk one. And um, who knows, maybe he picks up the land bridge to Crimea along the way because now he's got Mario Poland. So, you know, he's he takes that little sliver and he gets hit with a bunch of sanctions. But it's over fairly quickly. He's got a bigger chunk of Ukraine. And it sounds to me, and correct me if you think I'm wrong, that Zelensky is kind of like, well, maybe that's the price I have to pay for my job. You know, he's not, it's you know, he's saying all the right things, but we don't see the Ukrainian military leaning into pushing them out and still wanting a kind of a negotiated solution. So then Putin's a pariah for a while, but he's chipped away. And it permanently imprinted on the mind of every leader in Kiev is the 190,000 troops that are just around the corner and that he could bring back at any time. Is that a win for Putin? So, I mean, if you believe, as I do, that his goal in Ukraine, I mean, his ultimate goal is broader than Ukraine. He really does want to restore a Soviet-type sphere of influence, not only in the post-Soviet space, but possibly in Central and Eastern Europe. If you read the ultimatums that were delivered in December, uh, I mean, he's talking about NATO pulling back its military posture to 1997. But as far as Ukraine's concerned, he wants to control Ukraine. He wants to make sure that there is a pro-Russian government in Kyiv, one that, of course, abandons any hope of NATO membership, European Union membership. We know neither of those are on the cards, but Ukrainians would like them, and uh, throws out all Western military trainers permanently neutral and pro-Russian. Can he achieve that by what he's doing by these kind of salami tactics? And before I go into that, I want to remind everyone listening to this or watching it, when Putin regrets the collapse of the Soviet Union as the greatest geopolitical catastrophe, he did pretty well out of that collapse. I mean, if the Soviet Union had continued, he would have been a middle-level KGB case officer, you know, in a provincial East German town. Now he's you know, the president of Russia and a wealthy man. So um, I think there's a disjunction between his historical regrets and, and his own uh, personal life. But so let's, let's play out the scenario. So you said he would take Mariupol. Mariupol is a city of a few million people. This is not a cakewalk. I mean, you would have substantial casualties, violence. It's not just you know, an, an easy thing to do, but he could take a limited amount of territory, build a land bridge. What he has lost now by recognizing the independence of these entities is the leverage that he had hoped to have with the, had the Minsk agreements been implemented by the Ukrainians, which was sort of control over Ukraine's foreign policy, essentially, uh, if the two entities um, had had this special status in Ukraine. So he's lost public opinion data that I saw yesterday from Ukraine shows that a vast majority of Ukrainians, including those in the East, have become increasingly anti-Russian, thanks to what Putin has done, and are pro-Ukrainian and want Ukraine to be a sovereign, independent state. People are training civilian defense. 
So there will be some resistance. I don't know how extensive that will be, but this not, nothing is going to be a cakewalk here. Um, it is true that what Russia has done is to further diminish the uh, Ukrainian economy's chances of sort of surviving in this current atmosphere. The economy is in bad shape. Investors are fleeing. And of course, if this grinds on with these kind of incremental steps, military steps, uh, the Ukrainian economy will further deteriorate. Maybe Zelensky will then realize that he doesn't have any choice but to make a, a deal with the Russians. That's what he came into power saying he wanted to do. And yet he has turned increasingly anti-Russian because of what the Russians have done. Today, the Russian parliament has said that Ukraine has to fulfill you know, three things. Um, it has to give up NATO membership. It has to throw out any Western military trainers, advisors, and it has to stop fighting. It's not ready to do that yet. So I think this will be a much more difficult win for Putin. On the other hand, if there were to be a full-scale invasion, which I think all of us believe maybe isn't imminent or may not happen, then it would be extremely costly for Russia. And Putin, having told his population in July that Ukrainians and Russians are one nation, and then sending young men to fight and die there in large numbers, that would, even though Russia is a very repressive society, that would still cause, I think, domestic political ripples there. And the Russian public has not been prepared for a conflict with Ukraine. Uh, the Russian public blames the US and NATO for the crisis, but there's really nothing being done. I think Putin's speech last night was the first instance to prepare them for that. So we go back to this the, the salami tactics, if you like. If the definition of winning is to have a, a subservient Ukrainian government or a, a coup, a new government in Ukraine, I think that's still going to be very difficult to achieve. So let me flip the question, Corey. Same scenario, since there seems to be some view here that it's a possible scenario, if not the most likely scenario, or maybe it is the most likely scenario. Putin goes in, bites off of a couple of these chunks, but Zelensky stays in power. There is a deal there, you know, there's some sanctions. Major catastrophe warfare is averted. How does the West spin this as a victory, and is it one? I don't think that will be a stasis position, because I do think the economic sanctions are likely to be significant, both by Europe and the United States. And Medvedev popping up to say, get ready for really expensive gas, Germany. But the thing about the Western alliance is that values really matter. And when push comes to shove, when NATO countries get scared, they actually want to hold hands with each other. And so I do think Western unity is likely to hold. President Biden's doing a good job holding it. I especially liked the grace note of extending an initial billion dollar line of credit to the Ukrainian government. So it won't be enough to penalize Russia. We actually need to help Ukraine. And I think there's going to be a lot of support for that. What I worry about is the Russians now moving in in significant force into the breakaway republics, trying to push to hold the extent of Luhansk and Donetsk, and that being a fight that the Ukrainians 
are willing to engage and actually should engage. It is their territory. So two potentially really terrible outcomes. One is that Russia's efforts to infiltrate Ukrainian security services have been effective and you see mass defections to the Russian side because that would collapse Western support for a hard line in support of Ukraine. Or a second sad outcome, which is this evolving like the Spanish Civil War, where you have huge inflows of irregular fighters on the side of Ukraine, then trying to skitter out to safe havens beyond Ukraine. I think the real potential for Russian forces firing on Polish units or irregulars in Poland is a real possibility given where we are. That said, I still favor a very hard line on this. I think it was a mistake for President Biden to clarify that Russia ran no risk of engaging American forces if Russia once again invaded Ukraine. I think that's probably a safer bet than any equivocation. Michael, as Corey was talking, we just passed as we're recording here, 222 on 222.22. And I just wanted to know if you had any comments on that. Well, there is a, an element of Russian superstition. I mean, just to give you a, like a fun little anecdote from, from my book, one of the reasons that these GRU guys keep getting caught through Bellingcat open source forensic work is when they come up with their legends, they use the same exact birth date. And why is that? Well, astrology is kind of a big deal in Russia, and it's one less thing for them to have to remember their zodiac sign if they're asked at the border guard, what's your, your invented persona? But anyway, look, I, I don't put too much into the, um, the numerological analysis. I have to say, I was, I was just kidding, but that was a much more interesting. No, answer. I mean, a lot of people actually put a lot of, <laughs> a, a lot of store by this. I, I look, Here's something that sort of came across to me, and I, I, I haven't quite put all of my thoughts in order on this, but listening to Putin's speech yesterday, and Angela, maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, I don't recall a Russian leader in the post-Soviet period running down Vladimir Lenin the way that Putin did. Yeltsin didn't even do it. And this sort of raises an interesting kind of question in my mind. The so-called war party in Moscow all consist of men of roughly the same generation. Most of them, in fact, I think all but one, are KGB officers. You have Narishkin, the SVR director, who yesterday looked like a dog who'd gone through the car wash with the top down. I mean, Putin absolutely humiliated him on international TV, nothing I've ever seen before. Bortnikov, the FSB director, and most important, Patrushev, probably the second most powerful man in Russia, former FSB director, and currently the secretary of the Russian Security Council. Now, these guys all came of age in Andropov's KGB, right? They are of a very kind of vintage sword in the shield mentality. What was their primary role as Czechists? Safeguarding the motherland from enemies within and without. There is a narrative that has gained a lot of purchase, certainly since the 1990s, when a lot of these guys started to rise in politics and, and also the security services in leadership positions that the sword and the shield failed. And Dropov might have been a great KGB director in all but one respect. Who was his protege? Mikhail Gorbachev. What did Andropov begin to do? Allowed the liberalization and the reforms, which ultimately led to the collapse 
the Soviet empire, the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century, as Mr. Putin has put it, and no doubt as Portnikov, Norishkin, and Patrushev also firmly believe. What we are seeing is the rise of the KGB state absent the ideology that had sort of tied it all together. There is no superstructure anymore. I think Putin has replaced the party in 20th century terms and has now tied his own legacy as kind of the ingatherer of all the Russian lands, as the maker of Russia, as another great power in the making, messianically to the fate of his country. Now, this is going to contradict everything that I said before, but one of the theories that you're seeing propounded, especially by Russian military analysts, Michael Kaufman, Robert Lee, who are looking at the, the manpower and the firepower brought to bear, not just on Ukraine's eastern border, but all around Ukraine, Transnistria, Belarus in the north, and now, of course, occupied Crimea and the Black Sea and Sea of Azov, they feel that actually, no, maybe he really does want the whole thing. And maybe he really is risk averse, as he may have been for the last 22 years, willing to go all out to take it. Now, I can't rule that proposition out. Again, we've seen goalpost shift. We've seen precedents, including the abasement of your SVR director on international TV. We've seen them completely upended. But I think that a lot of this has to be looked at through the the lens of the Siloviki are now firmly in charge of this country. Some very good reporting and analysis suggests they don't really care they have been girding for a confrontation with the West. I mean, you're quite right. This is not about Ukraine and the Ukrainian people. And by Putin's lights, by invading, destroying Kiev, what is he doing? He's creating a civil war, right? Because the Russians and the Ukrainians are one people. This, in their mind, is a confrontation with NATO. It is a confrontation with the United States. And if you look at Russian state media, that's exactly how it's been framed. And unfortunately, these guys don't really care about sanctions. They've all been sanctioned already. It's guys like Sergei Lavrov with his mistress living in a four million pound flat in Kensington who are more worried about sanctions. It's the kind of the Western friendly moderates. These guys are not that. And if they really believe their own propaganda, that they can have this confrontation with the West, well, then we're in terror incognita here because we've not seen this in the Russian Federation in the last three decades. Interesting. At this point, typically in our podcasts and also today, we take a minor break. So we say goodbye to the folks that are listening to us in the general public. And we say, for those of you who are members, stand by and we'll keep going. And if you're not a member, go to the dsrnetwork.com, click membership, and you'll get to hear all of each podcast as our members do. In this particular case, we're going to go ahead. We're going to have a little bit of a conversation about what President Biden has said today and the significance. So, For those of you who are members, stand by. We'll be right back. 